The story is told of a family who had twin boys whose only resemblance to each other was their looks. If one felt it was too hot, the other thought it was too cold. If one said the TV was too loud, the other claimed the volume needed to be turned up. Opposite in any way, every way, one was an eternal optimist, the other a gloom and doom pessimist. So just to see what would happen, on the twins' birthday, their father loaded the pessimist room with every imaginable new toy and game on the market. The optimist room he loaded with horse manure. That night, the father passed by the pessimist room and found him sitting amid all of his new gifts, crying bitterly. He said, what in the world are you crying about? He said, because my friends, when they find out everything that I got, they'll be jealous and they won't like me anymore. I'll have to read all of these instructions before I can even try to use any of this stuff. I'll constantly be needing new batteries, and this stuff's going to eventually break. Passing the Optimist twins' room, the father found him dancing for joy in the pile of manure. He said, why in the world are you so happy? To which his son said, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> God reminded me of that story. As we come to the conclusion of our study in the book of Acts, the story reminds me of the attitude and the outlook that existed in the life of the Apostle Paul. You know, despite intense persecution, imprisonments, physical, emotional, and spiritual beatings, the Bible tells us that five times he received 39 lashes from his own countrymen. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead. There were three shipwrecks at the time he wrote that letter to the Corinthians, and we know that we can add a fourth from our study in the book of Acts. Four times he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and day bobbing, in the, bobbing up and down in the deep. And he had a continual burden for the spiritual well-being of others, and yet he never failed to see God's hand in it all. He saw God's hand in it all. And as, we've come, as we come to an end of this study through the book of Acts, I realized that after 48 messages, some of you are wondering if it would ever end. And uh, the answer for those of you who are wondering if it would ever end, I'm here to tell you that the, the story that we read in Acts is a never-ending story, this side of the rapture of the church, because it's ongoing. There is no ending. We are part of it. We are continuing the book of Acts even to this day. So this never-ending story, if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 28, will come to an end from the standpoint of studying the book, but we will not be near the end as far as living it out in our own personal lives. Acts chapter 28. Starting with uh, the, uh, verse 1, we'll go through the chapter, but we'll look at it from this standpoint now. And when they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and they received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after a long time, after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. 
Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it came about that after the and it came about that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. And they also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. And at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had wintered at the island, and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. And after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Patola. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus, we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. It is a foundational biblical truth that obedience brings God's blessing and disobedience his chastisement. In Luke eleven twenty eight, Jesus said this, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. James later revealed that the effectual doer shall be blessed in what he does. You go back to the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses exhorted the Israelites in Deuteronomy eleven twenty six through 28. He said, See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. Very simply put, he says, if we walk in obedience to God, we will be blessed. If we don't, we will be disciplined or chastised. There's consequence to wrong decisions. There's benefits to right decisions. And that puts it all in a nutshell. It's pretty simple. Do what's right before God, and God promises to bless you. Do what's wrong, and He promises that if you're a child of His, that He will discipline you and He will chastise you. And there's nothing pleasant about that process. One way God blesses those who obey Him is by granting their desires. In Psalm 21, David wrote, O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. Psalm 37, 4, some of us may have memorized, says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in God and his will, and he will give you the desires of your heart. As we consider this, we know that one of Paul's greatest desires was ultimately that he would visit Rome. And he would have the opportunity to, pro to proclaim the greatest news that man can ever hear. The love of God in Jesus Christ to, this, to the people who lived in Rome. The great Roman Empire, the seat of, seat of the world at that time. He knew strategically if the gospel would be proclaimed in Rome, that it would be spread throughout all of the world as people passed through and traveled from there. They would hear it and they would take it home with them. He was excited for that opportunity. He said, for I must, after I've been to Jerusalem, I must see Rome. And repeatedly throughout our study, we know that his desire was to go to Rome to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, at long last, the time had come for God to grant his faithful servant the desire of his heart. And it wasn't an easy journey. If you think about what we've studied to date, the imprisonments, the beatings, the beatings, 
the slander, the accusations. This man's a troublemaker. He stirs up riots everywhere that he goes. The oppression that he felt from the enemy was continual in his life, and yet he had a desire to go to Rome. And if you think about the journey just to get to Rome up to this point, the thing that is impressed upon me is a very simple truth, and that is that while we may have desires and may commit our ways to the Lord and He'll give us the desires of our heart, the timing is all in God's hands. And the route that we take is all in God's hands. You know, I'm sure that if we had our way and Paul had his way at that time, he would have rather had a first-class nonstop ticket, you know, with an in-flight movie that he hadn't previously seen, you know, and uh, wake me up on landing so I'm refreshed and ready to go. But God chose instead to uh, allow him to be detoured by a 14-day-long seasick trip through the Mediterranean only to end up, you know, crash-landing that ship outside the, the beach on Malta, but through the process, God delivered him and everyone on that ship safely as he promised. 276 people went on that trip, and that's the way that God chose for them to go and the journey that God chose for Paul to go to Rome. And two, two things basically stand out to me, and that's one is this, that you know what? God chooses the route in which he wants us to travel so that we'll be better prepared when we get to that destination to do that which God has called us to do. And maybe as important, along the route, we're to be faithful and not sidetracked by the end result. See, so many of us set goals for God, and in the meantime, we do nothing for Him in the process of getting to there. This is my goal, my desire someday to do this, and God says, hey, you know what? That's presumptuous, because who says that you'll ever live to see another day? So we're to redeem the time wisely, for the days are evil, and get busy now. And what we find of the Apostle Paul, while he had the desire to go to Rome, and as we see, he'll have the desire to go to Spain. But the bottom line is, wherever he was at that moment in time, in the present tense, he was also always faithful to the duties which God had assigned him to perform. The question I have is this, is that, are you faithful today? See, if you're not faithful today, how will you be faithful tomorrow? If you're not faithful where you are, how will you be faithful where you're not? If you're not faithful what God has given you, how will you be faithful if he gives you more? And that's what we learn from the life of the Apostle Paul. And from this passage, I want to share with you six events that take place. And the reason I throw out six events is because some of you keep track and you count them off one after the other. And it gives you a better idea how quickly you'll get out of here. But then again, if you've been here long enough, you know that it's just a tease. Because I'll say six and we might get to four. Uh, you know what I mean? Or I'll say six and I might spend 40 minutes on the first one and really throw off your whole system. And then only a minute on one other one. And then it's like, man, I can't figure it out. And that's the whole purpose. Don't try. <laughs> Sit back, relax, and enjoy and allow God to teach you what he wants to get across to you in your life so that when you're obedient to him, he will bless you. Commit your ways to God and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Number one, first event. 
Pagan hospitality. Verses 1 through 2 are very clear. When they had been safely brought through or brought through safely, then we found out that the island was called Malta. They had been safely brought through or brought through, and as is always the case, God made good on his promises to deliver Paul and all on board, all 276 passengers. God promised them that they would live, not one of them would die. The same phrase is used at the end of chapter 27 and verse 43. It says at the time that when the ship wrecked and they were all jumping off or they were all going to shore... The, the, uh, the guards who were on the boat were concerned that their prisoners, once they got on land, would try to escape. If they escaped, then the prisoners of uh, the guards would be held responsible. So the game plan was very simple. Hey, you know what? We need to kill all the prisoners so that at least they don't escape and we're not killed for letting them get away. And if you read the text, it says in Julius that Centurion wanted Paul to be brought safely through that moment of crisis because of what he had done up to that point. He honored him for his faithfulness and his carrying out of the duties that were at hand. And for the fact that I believe by this point, Julius was convinced that Paul genuinely was a messenger of the one true God. His life demonstrated to the point that Julius said, don't, don't kill any of them. Because I trust them that Paul will not allow them to try to escape. They were brought safely through. God will always bring about his promises. There is no other option. God is not like man. He cannot tell us something and not bring it to fruition. He cannot lie to anyone. It is against his character. In God, there is no darkness at all. And when God makes you and I a promise through his word, he will bring it through to fruition in his timing, in his way, but still it will come through exactly as he says. And that's what happened here. They were brought safely through. They were cold, they were wet, they were battered, they were exhausted, they were hungry, they were thirsty. But one thing was true, they were still alive. And they crawled up onto the shore and the island of Malta. And the Bible says that they came across the natives. And the natives of this small island reached out to these survivors. The island, for those of you who care about details, is 58 miles south of Sicily. It's an island that's only 17 miles long. It's only 9 miles wide. They came across the natives. The Greek term is barbaro, which we get the word barbarian, which would give a negative connotation to it, but it's not negative whatsoever. The, the term the native simply means that these people didn't speak, speak Greek or they didn't, and they didn't speak Latin. And so they spoke a language other than Greek or Latin and they called them natives. You know, a, a negative term, you know, you hear things like the natives are restless. You know, it kind of gives that barbarian kind of, a, a, of a connotation, but that's not the case at all. The natives here simply mean people that didn't speak Greek and, and didn't speak Latin. And another way to put it would be, well, you know, how many in here are natives of California? You know, and, but that may throw off the illustration. So, but... Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> the, the reality of it is that the natives uh, showed them what was, what was amazing is they showed them extraordinary kindness. Extraordinary kindness from the standpoint that Luke observed that they demonstrated an extraordinary amount of kindness because typically what would happen in the ancient world when a ship such as that would, would crash or wreck or, or prisoners would come ashore, those people on the island to protect themselves and their families would kill them or enslave them. And so they did neither kill them nor enslave them. They showed them extraordinary kindness, which Luke made a, a big, you know, makes sure that we all understand. And they received them all. They welcomed them. And there's a couple of things that, st that, that stand out in my mind as it relates to this whole, uh, this whole idea of hospitality. They showed them extraordinary kindness. People who are pagan, who don't necessarily even believe in God, extended hospitality to strangers. The Bible says this. That we as God's people, particularly leaders of the church, are commanded. One of the qualifications of being a leader in the church 
is to demonstrate hospitality towards strangers. But all believers are commanded to be hospitable towards strangers, to show hospitality, because in so doing, it reflects Jesus Christ living within us. See, in the book of 3 John, there was a gentleman by the name of Diotrephes, and he was rebuked in public by John because he tried to prohibit God's people from showing hospitality to strangers. And he was rebuked by the word of God for doing that. We are all to entertain strangers so that they can see the love of Christ within us. A second truth, and a very important truth, a theological truth as it were, relates to the fact that one aspect of God's general revelation to all people is the moral laws that God writes upon our hearts. I want you to think about how important this is for a second. Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, what's being demonstrated to us on Malta is although the specifics may vary, every culture holds some things to be right and other things to be wrong. Paul sets forth this truth in Romans chapter 2. Look at verse 14. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Jump to verse 27, it says, And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will not he judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Let me put in very simple terms what's being taught here. It's illustrated beautifully by the events that took place on September 11th. On a show, I think it was Dateline or, or Nightline or something of that nature, I remember distinctly a, a, a feature about an airline that because when the, when the issue or the command went out that all airlines had to land as quickly as possible at the, at the closest uh, field in which would accommodate their aircraft, there's a little island off the coast of Newfoundland and a jet landed there with 280-some passengers on it. And it reminds me of these 276 people on the ship. And the airline landed, but there was no facility on the island. There was no hotels. There was no facility in which to accommodate the people who would then come on this airplane. When the plane landed, the message went out to the community. And people from throughout the community came and rallied around the needs of these people. And they opened up a schoolroom and they brought bedding and they brought uh, any kind of bedding that they had, whether it was sleeping bags or, bags or, or, or sheets and quilts and, and pillows and, and food and water and anything and everything that could be needed by those people because they had no idea at that point how long they would have to stay. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. What would cause a person who doesn't even claim to believe in God to rally to the support of a stranger that he or she has never met? What is it about the heart of man that would reach out to someone that we've never met or don't know to be willing to help them? Regardless of what their personal theological convictions may be, if any at all. What would motivate a fireman or a policeman despite, you know, some people say, well, that's their job. But, you know, it's more than that. Why would somebody want to be a fireman or policeman? in order to serve the public or to reach out and help somebody that they've never met, whether they believe in God or not believe in God. 
the question that we have to ask ourselves is what would motivate the people on the island of Malta to reach out to 276 people? Among many of them, they already know that they're prisoners of Rome because the, the, you know, it would be very, very known at that point because of the guards of the Roman guards that were there and the prisoners and the chains that they had. What would, what would motivate them to reach out to strangers to, to show that kind of hospitality? And the answer is very clear in the Word of God that God has created all of humanity in His image and His likeness. Though sin distorts that and we don't accurately reflect who God is, within the heart of man are written God's moral laws. One of the greatest arguments for the existence of God in the universe or our Creator is that we do things like that without ever stopping to think of the significance of it. That hospitality that is shown and my question for all of us is this, how much more should that be visible or demonstrable in the life of those of us who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who lives within us? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. If unbelievers or pagans would reach out to one another to show hospitality, how much more should we who know God and understand this truth reach out to others? The other side of this is very significant. Because how many of you ever struggled with the question, how can God judge those who have never heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever heard that asked of you? Have you ever struggled with your own question? How can God justly judge those who have never heard the gospel? And the answer is found right here. God can justly condemn those who have never heard the gospel because they fail to keep the moral standards that they impose on others. Because there is no partiality with God. Notice in chapter 2, 11 and 12. There is no partiality with God. See, all who have sinned without the law, meaning all those who just have a general revelation of God written on their hearts, all those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So no matter how you look at it, the Word of God clearly teaches that all humanity is already condemned and guilty before God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous, no, not one. We all have been condemned already. When? When Adam chose to sin and rebel against God. Through Adam's sin and death entered into the world. We are all guilty before God. Whether we hear of the gospel of Jesus Christ or not, God can justly judge us and condemn us because what we do know and God's written on our hearts, we violate it anyway. We're guilty. That's the importance of the book of Acts to go into all the world and proclaim God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But the reality is we're all condemned. How can God justly do it? Easy, because God has written his moral laws on the heart of every human being, and every human being is held accountable to that law that is written on their heart. Every human being falls short of the law that's there. We're all guilty and condemned before God. Those who had the law and understood the law fell short of the law too. So they were guilty and condemned. We're all guilty and condemned. And this passage teaches clearly that truth. What is the remedy? We'll see that in a minute. The second event that takes place that's laid out before us is found in verses 3 through 6. And it has to do with the potential harm that could have taken place in the life of the Apostle Paul. Verses 3 through 6 back in Acts chapter 28. Notice that... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. But when uh, Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat fastened on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man's murder. Though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. 
However, he shook the creature off and the fire suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up, suddenly fall dead. But after they had waited a long time, had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. How many of you have watched any of the Survivor series? Oh, look, I know some of you don't remember. You don't admit to anything, do you? But every, you know, every Wednesday or Thursday, you're watching it. One thing that is, is all throughout, no matter where the location was, there's one thing that I noticed was common in every location, and that was what? They always had to find a way to start a fire. Fire was critical. Fire was important. It was the only way that, you know, you can cook your water, uh, you know, boil water, cook food, keep yourself warm. There was always a big effort to, fi- you know, to start a fire and then to continue to fuel the fire, to feed the fire. Go get sticks. Get us more sticks. Bring them back here. Let's pile some sticks up. Let's go ahead. The fire's going out. Get more sticks. And uh, there's, everyone's running around getting sticks to, to fuel the fire. Well, bottom line is these people just came off a boat. They were shipwrecked. They came crawling out of the ocean. They're freezing. It's cold. And the people, by showing hospitality in this case, began to kindle a fire. So they lit a fire. And this fire, as it was being lit, one of the fascinating things was that even the Apostle Paul, after everything that he had done, he was still out there gathering wood for the fire. What a beautiful illustration of the character of humility in this man's life. The character of humility. It's critical. It's essential of all godly leaders. To be humble. Even the Son of Man, Jesus said, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He illustrated that point when he even took the time to wash the feet of his quarrelsome disciples. One truth that continues to keep me humble and remind me that I'm not as great as I may sometimes think is being married. (laughs) No, just kidding. Just want to see if you're paying attention. No, 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 no. Nah, just kidding. No, I'm not. And all God's men said, Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> Seriously, the, the one truth that continues to remind me where my place is in the universe is that there is only one God, and I'm not Him. There's only one God, and I'm not Him. And I'll tell you what, it's the quickest path to humility. Read Job 38 through 42 when Job thought maybe a little too highly of himself and God being in to ask him a series of questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? What keeps the ocean from overrunning its banks? What holds the universe in place? You answer those things, and then we can talk as equals. But until then, I'm God, and you're not. I'm the potter, and you're the clay. Get used to it because it will be that way for all of eternity. We will never become, as some want others to believe, a God. We will never be God. There is only one God, and he's worthy of all of our praise. Paul's reward for such humility? He gets bit by a snake. So, I don't know, don't run out of here with that, saying, hey, listen, I'm not going to be humble, because you get bit by a snake when you're humble. But the reality of all of it is, is that a viper latches on, fastens on. Can you, I mean, he's out there, he's getting sticks, and it's like he takes the sticks, he puts them, lays them by the fire or in the fire, and one of the sticks turns into a snake. It doesn't turn into a snake, it was a snake, but he didn't see it. And some say because he had bad eyesight, he never saw it. The others is that the snake was probably in a state where it was, you know, half frozen and it wasn't moving, and so it wasn't like it was going all over the place, it was just there 
and he picked it up with everything else. And the Bible tells us, we don't have to, no conjecture, because of the heat, the snake was energized. Warmed him up. First thing he did was saw Paul's hand, bit him, and fastened on. It was hanging on his hand. Now, at this point, you've got to be thinking, I, you know, I, I've been at a point in my life where I just, you just have to laugh. I mean, if you're Paul by now, you just got to laugh. Oh, God, that was a good one. Here we go. <laughs> you know, shipwreck, crawled on shore. Here I am collecting wood. Now I get bit by a snake. <laughs> what else is going to happen? You know, it's kind of like the book of Job, you know. Hey, by the way, oh, no, this happened, this happened. And before they were even done saying what happened, the next thing happened, and another thing happened. And by then, you just got to go, you know, where are we going here? Fastened onto his hand. There are some skeptics who say, well, the snake wasn't poisonous. Because today on the island of Malta, there's no poisonous snakes. But the reality of it is, is that Luke is a trained physician and it's unlikely he would mistake a harmless snake for a poisonous snake. A trained medical man in ancient times was usually a good authority about serpents to which great respect was paid in ancient medicine and customs, according to Sir William Ramsey in his book, Luke the Physician. This is a sermon in and of itself. But the point I want to make at this juncture is very simple. We are all most vulnerable to the attacks of Satan, that serpent, that snake of old. After a great spiritual victory. Paul could have been just basking in the victory of God's deliverance. Our enemy is relentless. He is crafty. He is cunning. He is like a roaring lion seeking those he should devour. His desire is to devour God's people. The comfort that I have through the word of God is that our souls cannot be lost, for they are God's to protect. Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. But our salt can become worthless and tasteless and trampled under the feet of ungodly men. Ephesians 6 says, stay alert. Be alert to the schemes and the strategies of the devil. Our moment of greatest vulnerability is after a great spiritual victory. It's a metaphor, metaphor for spiritual life. A viper fastened onto his hand. And I want you to notice another great truth that's taught here. Notice what it says. Probably the greatest argument for the fact that it was a poisonous snake was the natives on the land recognized those poisons because they were all waiting for him to die. Not only waiting for him to die, but then, they, they, you know, Paul's actions were conspicuous in nature and that anybody else at that time that got bit by a poisonous snake would be freaking out. They'd be running around going crazy. <laughs> got bit by a snake. Poisonous snake, what am I going to do? You know, it's like that old joke, you know, the guy got bit in the backside by the poisonous snake. You know, and the only way we can get it out of it is, you know, to get, suck the venom out of it, you know. And the old joke is, looks like you're going to die, you know, because, well, you know, who's going to be friends enough to take care of the problem? But, but the reality of it is, is that, you know, he gets bit, sees that he's bit, and he just goes, man, shakes it off, and then proceeds to go on. Well, everyone that's there is watching, and their first conclusion is, justice always has a way of prevailing. Now, where do people get the idea of justice? Where do people get the idea of what is right and what is wrong? Any culture of the world has a sense of right and wrong. It may vary to some degrees, but there is a sense of right and wrong. Where do we get that as humanity? From God, our creator. 
There are things that... And any culture in the world has an understanding. If you do the right thing, good things happen. If you do the wrong thing, bad things happen. These pagans on this island, who may claim or not claim to believe in any god or gods they created themselves, recognized something interesting was taking place here. Paul, undoubtedly, in their eyes, was a murderer, but based on the Roman guards that were with him, and an understanding of the fact they were going to Rome and escorting prisoners. They were wrong in their conclusion, because after Paul's conversion, he never murdered anybody. So they were wrong in what they thought, but what they thought was this, that justice would not allow this man to live because he was guilty. Protected through the shipwreck, didn't matter. As soon as he got on shore, a snake would bite him. Justice always wins out at the end of the day. And you know why God puts that on all of our hearts? Because it's true. God's justice, his just system, will always, at the end of the day, be exactly as he says. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Those who die in their sins perish. Those who trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins have eternal life. The simplicity of the gospel. Right choices, blessing. Wrong choices, consequences. An illustration of truth right here. Now notice this. First of all, there's a whole bunch of other things we can learn from this. They were wrong in what they thought about Paul. Surely this man's murder, surely that he's guilty. And the bottom line was he wasn't a murderer and he wasn't guilty at all. Kind of like Job's friends, hey, there must be something wrong. It's like the people in John chapter 9 who said, hey, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? And Jesus said, neither of them. From the standpoint of what you're asking, his blindness wasn't a result of anybody's sin. His blind was, blindness was going to be used by God to demonstrate that Jesus Christ was, a, was and is the Savior of the world. He would open his eyes, and the eyes of the blind will see. According to Isaiah the prophet, when the Savior came, that's what he would do. This man was born blind so that God could be glorified through him. They were wrong in what they guessed. And the fact is, when they looked at it, the bottom line was at the end of the day, they said, well, you know what? They waited a long time before they came to the conclusion, he's not guilty of anything. He must be a god. They were wrong there too. So they were just wrong about the whole thing. They didn't understand what was going on. But because of that act, notice what happened in 7 through 11. It says that, that the, as we go through this, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the, of the island. His name is Publius. It says that he was a leading man who welcomed us, entertained us courteously for three days. Notice this, that Publius came, entertained these people, 276 of them, for three days, meaning he fed them, he clothed them, he did whatever they needed, he took care of all their needs. And there's something about what is happening here that is fascinating to me because Publius, though his father, we just learned, is very ill, he still demonstrated hospitality. Can I just challenge you to consider this? When things aren't exactly as you hope them to be, don't use it as an excuse to take it out on other people. Don't become bitter because of it towards others. You're either going to be bitter by it or you'll be made better by it. See, Publius, a pagan, a guy at this point who didn't even know Jesus Christ, didn't know the God of the universe, did not allow his father's illness to embitter him toward these people who were in dire straits. What a wonderful truth that is for all of us. It demonstrates this man's character. That his father was afflicted. And notice that he, he called Paul and they brought him to him. 
And Paul went in to see him. And after he had prayed, and I like the order of events that takes place here. Paul goes in, he sees this man's father is sick. And Paul prays to, the, to God. God, what is your will in this situation? What do you want to do through all of this? He's not going to presume upon God. He knows there's one God. He's not him. It's not his call to decide whether God's going to heal this man or not. He sought God first. He said, God, what is your will through all of this? And God clearly revealed to him that God wanted to heal this man through the Apostle Paul. And Paul then laid hands on him and healed him. And it was God's power working through Paul. And don't ever forget throughout the book of Acts, the purpose of the miracles of God were to authenticate the messengers of God that they were truly from God. Not only did they authenticate the messenger and also the message, but also it was a fulfillment of the prophecy that was laid out in Mark for us when God said that you shall go into the world and even vipers or snakes or poisonous snakes will not have any impact against my messengers. It was a fulfillment of that. Now, God still works through his people, but not in the same way. And I'll guarantee you, if you don't believe me, go out and pick up a poisonous snake. And when you get bit and you're getting sick and you're ready to die, you'll change your mind on what your theological position used to be. But the reality of it is, is that God still works through his people and performs miracles, powerful miracles, but not in the same way that we have to touch somebody and God works through us to do it. God works through his people as we are obedient to him and the word of God is now complete. They can check the word of God to see if we're genuine messengers or authentic messengers of God by searching the scriptures. We've got the complete word of God that no longer is necessary. He laid hands. They were healed. Everyone in the island started to come. And as a result of that, they honored Paul when it was time for him to leave. And I'll tell you why they honored him. I bet during those three months that many of those people came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, history tells us that the first church that was founded upon Malta was pastored by by a guy named Publius. Is that awesome? That's awesome. Now, we see as the ship travels that God's promise to Paul is going to be honored. Leaving Malta... At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship. Remember, it was a grain ship that had wrecked in the first place, which had wintered in the island, which had the twin brothers for its figurehead that had to do with the twin sons of Zeus, the protectors of sailors. And at the end of three months, we sat we set sail on Alexandrian. Uh, it says, after we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. Those who are interested in following the travels, if you've got a study Bible, it's, it's fascinating to look at the map in the back and see, you know, they left from the southeastern portion of Sicily. They went up to this port, to the next port. They got to where they were going. And on the way, it says they came across the brethren. There were those in Rome who heard that Paul was coming, and they walked out to greet them. And we know by the the designations that are given, the brethren, when they heard of us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. We know from this reference point that some of these people walked 43 miles from Rome until they finally greeted Paul and his party as they were coming on the great Appian Way into the city of Rome. They walked 43 miles to meet him. The second group got as far as 33 miles when they finally came across each other. Now, this is, this is what's called eisegesis. I, I'm, I'm telling you my opinion here. It's not biblical necessarily, but it's something that God put upon me, and that's simply this. And that is that, you know, it, it reminds me that, you know, some of God's people are willing to go further than others. I don't know if they left later, and that's why they, only, they were 10 miles behind. I don't know if they got 33 miles and said, we'll just wait here and let them catch up to us. I don't know, and it's conjecture, but it was something that God put on my heart, and that's this. Chuck, how far are you willing to go for the kingdom of God? Are you willing to go as far as I require of you? Are you willing to be like those in Hebrews chapter 11 that left everything aside? 
and follow God's calling in your life? Or are you only willing to go to the point of inconvenience, minor discomfort? Are you willing to be like the Apostle Paul to go all the way to the point of laying your life down for the cause of Jesus Christ? I I can't answer that for you, and I'm struggling even answering it for myself. But I'd like to throw that out for something for you to think about. How far are you willing to go for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to alienate your family? just by telling the truth? Are you willing even to lose a job because your faith becomes more visible in the workplace? Are you willing to lose friends who no longer want to hang around you because you, you know, you're kind of a damp rag on the party, so to speak? What price are you willing to pay so that others can see Jesus Christ alive and well in you? Someone as far as and someone further than others. And from that, Paul took courage and ultimately ended up in the city of Rome. Commit your ways to the Lord and he gives you the desires of your heart. And the next event that takes place is very simple. The Bible simply tells us that Paul was a prisoner. He was housed in his own, quote, apartment. He did not have the freedom to travel. He did not have the freedom to leave. He was by himself with a soldier guarding him at all times. They would switch off at different times and they would guard him. And we know that through this experience, the faithfulness of being in the present moment, that as he wrote to the Philippians, he said that, you know what? My cause or my imprisonment has worked out well because because of my imprisonment, the whole praetorian guard has heard of God's love and that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Every guard that got chained to him for their shift got to hear in vivid details Paul's testimony, how Jesus Christ appeared to him, how he was alive to this day, how he lived within him, how he took him, a man who hated, hated Jesus Christ and was hostile to the things of God and softened his heart and turned him from sin, turned him to God and gave him eternal life when he trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sin. Every guy chained to him knew what to expect when it was their shift turn. And I'll guarantee you that every time they came and got changed back, they chained back, Paul probably looked and said, do you have any questions I can help you with? Have you been thinking about anything I've been sharing with you? How's your family doing? What's going on at home? How's the wife? How's the missus? How's the kids? Everything okay? Are you troubled? I talked to my son-in-law the other day, and he said he had a conversation with uh, the other firemen at a station. And he began to talk about the things of God. And he said that the next morning... He asked him at breakfast, said, hey, how'd you guys sleep? One of them said, I didn't sleep at all. That's good. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. May we become people who cause others, by telling them the truth, to have many sleepless nights for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Prisoners housed, and we get to the last point, the last event. And that is this, that the proclamation was heard throughout the Roman Empire. The proclamation was heard throughout the Roman Empire. Notice, and it happened that after these three days, he called together, Paul is now in Rome. Only took him three days to get a lay of the land. Checked it all out, figured out what was going on, what he could do, what he couldn't do, how to go about it. After three days, time to get to work. And I believe during those three days, he prayed that God would open doors for him. He prayed. There's a time to pray. And there's time to act. And that's the balance in the Word of God. Read the book of Nehemiah. There are times to pray and there was a time to pick up the bricks and start to build. There was a time to pick up the bricks with one hand and a sword with the other. There's a time to pray and there's a time to act. 
It's time to act. He called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, as was always his tradition or the way that he approached it. Every place he went, he called the Jews first, his countrymen. He had a burden that the Jews would come to faith in their Savior. He called them together. And when they had come together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of the fathers, yet I was, delivered prisoner, I was a delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. He said, When they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. I didn't do anything wrong. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain, speaking of his chains that he was in, for the sake of the hope of Israel. This term, the hope of Israel, is very important. The hope of Israel was found all throughout the Old Testament, and that was simply this. The hope of Israel is grounded in the Old Testament. It's expressed in the ancient book of Job when Job said this, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes shall see, and not another. Joseph requested to be buried in his own country, his own land, because they knew in the Old Testament one day God would raise the dead, and the first thing that they would see is their Savior face to face. Daniel said the same thing in Daniel 12, that there would be a great resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. And those who believed and were declared righteous by God would see their Savior, their God, face to face in the flesh. The hope of all Israel was the resurrection of the dead. Those to eternal life that believed and those to eternal destruction who did not. If you remember when Lazarus died... Jesus asked Martha and Mary at that time specifically, do you not believe that your brother will be raised from the dead? And they said, we know he shall be raised from the dead on that last day. He said to them, I am the resurrection and the life, meaning that, yes, they will be raised from the dead, but I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, even though he dies, shall surely live. Do you believe this? And she said, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of the living God, the one that God has sent into the world, the Savior of the world. That's what she believed. And because she believed, it was reckoned or declared unto her righteousness according to the righteousness of Christ. She is a child of God who believed in His name. Not for any work that she did, not for any efforts on her own part, but because she believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent, and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. The hope of all Israel was the resurrection of the dead, the righteous into the eternal presence of God. And he shared with them through the scriptures what God was teaching. Daniel said, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will wake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He went on and said, they'd re they said to him, we, we've neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. Say, well, we don't know, you know what you're talking about as far as what you just said, but we desire to hear. We desire to hear from you what your views are for concerning the sect. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. We're hearing bad things about what you're saying, but our desire is to hear you out, to be open, to be teachable. And you know what? A relationship with God must begin with a person whose heart is desirous to hear the truth. Those who seek the Lord shall not be disappointed. Those who are seeking excuses and looking for reasons not to believe, you'll find them. And as we'll see here, it's because of the heart. He began to explain the gospel to them. The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
very clearly the kingdom of God, he began to explain to them, testifying about the kingdom, meant preaching the gospel, the good news, that God sovereignly calls sinners, hopelessly caught in the realm of Satan, death, and destruction, into the realm of salvation, life, and glory. Paul proclaimed the truths concerning Christ, the way of salvation and righteous living. He pointed the way for them to enter the sphere of salvation and enjoy fellowship with God. Can you and I declare concisely what God's plan is for man. Could you tell somebody what it takes to get to heaven? Could you concisely explain what God's command is to all of humanity? Paul, in our study of Acts, said it was very simple. God's command to every human being is that they repent from sin. We all fall short. We're all condemned. Whether you believe in God or not, you've never lived up to the moral laws that God has put onto your heart. Whether you have the laws of God, you still have not. You've fallen short of God's laws. We're all condemned. God's command to every man everywhere is to repent. Repent means change your mind or change of heart. It means to have a change of mind about how you think you can get to heaven. If you think you can work your way to heaven, repent. You can't. If you think all roads lead to heaven, repent. They don't. If you think there's any other way but through Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord to get to heaven, there is no other way. Repent and change of mind and heart. It means to turn from sin and your own ideas of how to get to heaven and turn and accept God's plan for man. There is only one name given under heaven by which man can be saved, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. There is only one way to heaven. Jesus said himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can't get there any other way but through me. You must repent. The kingdom of God and 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 the essence of the gospel is simple. Man is sinful, separated from God for all of eternity. We're condemned at a moment in time. But at a historic moment of time, you have to repent in your own heart. Turn from sin. Turn to God. And believe what? That God loves us. And he sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, into the world to die upon the cross, a substitute for our sin. To believe his death was in my place personally. And to believe three days later that God raised him from the dead. And if you believe that in your heart, you shall be saved. To receive him as your savior is a personal act at a moment in time preceded by repentance first and belief in Him as the only Savior of the world. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, that is the message that Paul wanted those in Rome to hear. That is the message he was committed to. He was explaining it. He was testifying about the kingdom of God in verse 23. He was trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from the word of God. And I want you to notice something. He did it from morning until evening. He was tireless in his effort to reach people for the kingdom of God. It was always forefront in his mind. Every person that we come in contact with, we've got to ask the question, do they know the Savior or not? If they don't, they are condemned and they shall perish in a place called hell. It should never be far from our mind, do you know Jesus? Have you come to receive Him as your Savior? Do you believe in Him and Him alone? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about heaven? Do you believe there's a heaven? Yes, I do. Do you believe you're going to go? Of course I believe that. How do you think you're going to get there? I'm a good person. I hear that every time I ask someone the question. You're not. And maybe just saying that. Have you always done the right thing? How do you know what's right? How do you know what's wrong? I was talking to a guy the other day who plays professional sports, and I said, listen, what's your curfew on this team? 11 o'clock. 
said, you ever play on a team where curfew was different on the road? Yeah, we had a team that curfew was 12. I said, so on this team, the curfew is 11. If you're out after 11 and your coach catches you and he tries to find you, all you're going to have to say to him is, hey, my old coach, my old team, the curfew was 12, so I'm not guilty. He looked at me like, are you crazy? That's a stupid thing to say. I said, exactly, and that's no different than any person that says, but by my standard, I'm good. Who cares what your standard is? We all report and are accountable to God. It's his standard. He says you've got to be perfect. Are you perfect? No. Then you're in trouble. You're in trouble here. We're all in trouble here. Well, what's the remedy? Repent. Have a change of mind and heart about what you just said. Accept God's plan. Trust in Jesus Christ. His death on the cross for you. His resurrection for you. And receive Him as your Savior. For what's the heart man believes resulting in righteousness. But then with his mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Our lips and our life always have to be going in the same direction. See, Paul explained to them, persuaded them. And you know what? As always is the case, some believed and some didn't. And then he shared with the Jews at this particular point, the Old Testament, that says that you will go to your people, and even though they have ears, they won't hear. And even though they have eyes, they won't see. But because of that, you will then go to the Gentiles, and they will believe. And I say, praise God, because I'm not a Jew, and I'm a Gentile. And I just thank God that God's plan included me and you. And that someone was faithful to deliver us the message. Man, you know, we, we learned a lot through this study. I, I mean, I did. I don't know if you did, but, you know, I know I did. And I want to know how, to, how do you summarize everything that we've learned? And I want to put it very simply, because Acts is predominantly a book about evangelism. To go out and tell the good news. The bad news is we're all sinners. None are righteous, no, not one. All guilty, condemned before God. We're on the way to hell, man. That's bad news for everybody. But in order to understand the good news, you've got to understand the bad. The good news is God loves us anyway. And he pursues us with an everlasting love. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. Some believe and some would not. And I want you to notice it says they would not. Not because they could not, not because they didn't have the capacity, but because they would not. They refused. These principles of evangelism will sum up our study. Number one, Paul preached the gospel wherever and whenever he had opportunity. When he was under house arrest, he preached the gospel. He continued preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness. He continued trying to persuade and to reason and to teach and to declare truth. Second, his message was always clothed in humility and graciousness. We've got to be very careful how we tell somebody they're going to hell. And we need to be very humble and gracious about that truth. Because I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but that could put somebody on the defensive. So we need to be clothed in humility when we share the message. Third, we need to preach biblically and doctrinally, which means basically this. Your opinion doesn't mean anything. My opinion doesn't mean anything. God's word means everything. Your opinion can't save anyone from God's judgment. Only the Word of God, coupled with the Spirit of God, can convict the hearts of man. Forget opinion. Seek truth from the Word of God. 
Paul never wasted opportunity. He began his evangelistic outreach only three days after he arrived in Rome. He was steadfast. He was immovable. He took advantage. He seized the moment and the opportunity. Fifth, he preached tirelessly and incessantly from morning till evening. He never got tired of telling people about Jesus. How can any of us ever get tired of telling anybody else about God's love in Jesus Christ? He preached to everyone, Jews and Gentiles. He didn't exclude anybody. He didn't just tell people he liked about Jesus. He told people that hated him about Jesus. Sometimes it's easy to tell people you care about about Jesus because you care about them and you care about their soul. Sometimes we're like Jonah. It's like, hey, you know what? As far as I'm concerned, man, he can go to hell. Don't ever be like that. Don't ever have that attitude. And finally, most importantly... He preached the Lord Jesus Christ. He preached the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because there is no other message given to man that will save them from the judgment of God than the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Him later, three days, raised from the dead. He is alive today. The question that I have for you is very simple. What category are you in? Some have believed and some would not believe. Those who believe, everlasting life. Those who will not believe, shall perish. There's benefits to right choices and consequences to wrong choices. If you've never believed, this is your moment. This is your opportunity to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. To believe that you're a sinner separated from God. That God loves you anyway and he sent Christ to die on the cross for you. And he raised him up three days later to declare once and for all his triumphant victory over Satan, over death, over the grave. Have you trusted him as your Savior? Don't hesitate. For today is the day of the Lord. Do not presume upon God that you will even have a choice to make such as this tomorrow. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the study through the book of Acts. The church throughout the generations has been faithful to declare the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified and him raised again from the dead. May future generations look back at us as a generation who carried the baton faithfully. God, I pray for those today who are not sure of their relationship with you or what would happen to them if they died at this moment, that at this moment in time they would repent, they would change their mind and heart of what they believe about themselves and trust what you say, that they are separated sinners from God. But you love them anyway, and you sent Christ to die upon the cross for them and to raise them from the dead. And whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, may that become a real, a very reality in the person's life who has prayed that prayer. That your presence would be known and felt and your spirit would bear witness with our spirit that we're children of God to those who believe in his name. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. And it's the name of Jesus above every other knee that the knee will bow. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. And all God's people said, Amen.